Welcome to another episode of the Dave Stockbridge Podcast. The sun, is, <laughs> the sun is shining, the birds are singing. It's Dave from Real, and thanks so much for joining me on the podcast once again, where every episode I aim to bring you helpful hints and tips that I hope helps you make and save tens of thousands of dollars on your real estate journey. And today I'm joined by Rick Carter, and Rick is best known by his title as Ringmaster at Innovation in the City. Uh, Rick is uh, Adelaide-based and um, shares his insights with uh, people just like uh, you and me so that we've got a, a, a clearer idea as to where we're going to be as uh, as a society, as a city, in the next uh, in the near future, in the next three to to six years, and um, I guess that's about as far off as uh, we can ever really predict with any reliability. Is that right, Rick? Um, yeah, I think in this day and age, uh, anyone who's talking about predicting the future on about on beyond about five or six years is kidding themselves. Um, you've only got to look back at uh, what's happened since the iPhone, since the iPad. All those kind of things, uh, they've spawned all sorts of stuff that we may not have imagined until we uh, we had those devices in our hand. So there was a few things I wanted to discuss, and one, the impact of innovation um, economically in South Australia, and um, uh, and there's certainly a whole lot going on there, especially in the, the space industry, and I guess that's a, um, a, a great example as to an industry that really didn't exist in the same way just 36 months ago that's now uh, going to prove to be a, a tremendous source of investment in our state in the uh, not-too-distant future. Um, and um, and also the, the impact on a practical level of uh, blockchain and the like in terms of um, real estate transactions and, and how blockchain can uh, underpin uh, the legal transactions that, uh, of course, uh, um, uh, that underpin our real estate market. Um, so, um, so Rick, um, with innovation in the city right now, and um, there, what sectors do you feel are, are going to, uh, are, I guess, um, are set and ready to grow? Well, I think there's there's three that we are really strong at, and and um, two we are world leaders, and one we are you know emerging towards that. Um, the the world leading areas that we uh, we operate in. I'm just I'm just sitting on the flight path as we speak, which is which is known as my backyard in beautiful leafy North Adelaide. <laughs> uh, and it's one of the the only downside of living in North Adelaide is you are directly on the flight path. <laughs> um, um, biomedical, I think, is uh, one of the big sectors here. That whole precinct, if you take in from the Royal Adelaide Hospital up through Samri and Samri Two, South Australian Health and Medical Research Institute, uh, they've. Uh, starting to build SAMRI 2, which will have the only, um, I can't think of what it's called, proton uh, cyclotron in the in the basement, which is um, a major advancement in treatment of cancer. Then you go yeah. through the medical schools of Adelaide University and, um, uh, and the University of SA. So that biomedical um, is a real focus. And, and uh, you know, I'm working with companies that are doing uh, nutrition that will be targeted based on how you feel and when you feel. Uh, based on sensors and monitors, you then, you then look at uh, the other end um, of North Terrace. I, I refer to North Terrace as the inspira- the uh, boulevard of inspiration and innovation because if mm-hmm. you look from one end to the other, you take in art galleries, you take in Parliament even, um, the universities, and then you end up now at uh, Lot 14, which is the home, firstly, of the Australian... Uh, Institute for Artificial Intelligence and Machine Learning. Mm-hmm. And uh, certainly we are world-leading in that area. I know the University of Adelaide 
has more work than it can handle with all manner of, in, of international corporations seeking out their expertise in, in that area. And, and certainly artificial intelligence is going to play um, a big role in uh, in real estate. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, uh, space, where um, <clears throat> I, I generally say to people, space is, not a, is about um, what we do with space, not what we do in space. We're mm-hmm. not into putting man on the moon and whatever, but the companies here are... Um, into things like the Internet of Things, where there are there will be sensors on everything, monitors on everything, measures on everything, and all of that can be measured from space. In fact, I was looking this morning at um, how accurately we can um, we can drill down on objects from space. <clears throat> and um, I was looking at that for a project that might involve uh, how to better uh, farm and fish tuna. Mm-hmm. Um, from a from a satellite, we can wow. now see with great clarity uh, an object that's um, uh, about six inches long. Incredible! You can, you can get full definition of something from from six inches. So the, the you know Google Maps and Google Earth and all those kind of things can now be done from space. They don't necessarily be need to be running around the street. So in, in South Australia, we're very much in that. Um, dare I use the word space? There are three companies here that. Um, of all have satellites in space at the moment, what they, what they call constellations. They put up a number of satellites that form a group. Mm-hmm. Um, that's Miriota, who, um, when I first met Miriota, um, oh, yeah, three years ago, yeah, 36 months is pretty good. They employed uh, the two founders and two people. Then they're now up to about 50. Um, wow. Fleet, who really started the, the um the space industry here, Flavia Tatanadini, who came from Italy and couldn't find a job, so she started an industry as a rocket scientist. Um, they, uh, they've got 50-plus people in a building um, uh, mission control centre that will operate out of North Paris for their, uh, their launches. Yeah. Um, and Innovore, who've got a contract with one of the biggest uh, satellite uh, manufacturers in the world. Um, so we're big in this small satellite space. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, speaking of real estate, um, a young man who came out of the uh, defence um, area, Department of Defence, yeah. um, he now has uh, leased land in Port Lincoln at Whaler's Way mm-hmm. and is establishing there a launching facility. Um, so we will be bringing rockets into South Australia, launching them from, uh, from there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the reason for that is it's perfectly placed excuse me, for polar orbits. Lots of the orbits you see from Cape Canaveral and whatever in the US are, are equatorial. Yeah. But there is a reason, I don't know what it is, uh, for polar orbits and uh, South Australia will be a leader, um, I think, in that area. But what that brings with it is uh, the whole supply chain. You know, there is no reason the rockets won't be manufactured, the smarts won't be manufactured, all of the assembly done and then shipped across to... Uh, to Whaler's Way on a barge. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're actually building, um, and, and there were people who would argue now there are many as many people employed in the space industry in South Australia as were employed at General Motors yeah. uh, in the final stage of General Motors. And there are also a lot of people who will say that there's there are no shortage of jobs in South Australia. The shortage is in expertise. Uh, uh, there are a lot mm-hmm. of people I speak to in the IT industry who tell me that there's probably a thousand people that could pick up a job almost instantly in various areas of uh, information technology. So we're going through a 
a change, a massive change in South Australia. We're going towards what's known as Industry 4.0. So Holdens and car manufacturing, all those kind of things, they're they're really industries of the past. Yeah. But there will be industries of the future that will be still – we still need blue-collar industries going well into the future. So, you know, I think the the future looks really bright, really bright. Let me just clear my throat. Yeah. (coughs) And – and in terms of uh, – so it, it seems that Adelaide is increasingly trading in the, the currency of ideas. And, yes. and, um, and is it a matter of the people of Adelaide uh, coming up with those ideas or are we attracting uh, the best and brightest from around the world with their ideas? Uh, I'm interested to get your thoughts on that. It's a bit of both. And, and uh, I, never, I always say it's never about the ideas because everybody's got plenty of those. It's about the execution. And, yep. and our catch cry at Innovation in the City is vision, urgency, action. Mm-hmm. And, and we lack urgency here. We are very slow. We are very conservative to get things going. Uh, we've been very much government-controlled state for a long time mm-hmm. <laughs> and very risk-averse. Yes. Uh, the other thing ideas need is money. Yeah. And there's very little of what's known in the in the startup world. Very little seed capital in in Adelaide. People have got to go into states to get the money. And and I hear people say, oh, but you know all these startup organisations they get started in there, they've got to move on. And you know where are the jobs going to come from? And my answer is, well, if you're all investing in these businesses instead of the old world of investing, uh, these businesses would grow and they would stay here. Well, I mean, we're attracting people into Adelaide for lifestyle reasons. Yeah. Um, you know, I listened to an interview from a, 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 a Paddy Newman who has a rocket mm-hmm. um, engine company. He moved from Sydney oh, yeah. for lifestyle mm-hmm. reasons, for property reasons. I mean, he said the rent he's paying in Adelaide enables him to hire one more person. So yeah. there are a lot of organisations in the in the new um, uh, industries areas who will move for Ad- to Adelaide for uh, that combination of cost. Um, and lifestyle. A lot of these, a lot of these people are not into the climbing of the corporate ladder. They're into starting their own businesses. So yes, there are great opportunities here for us to attract more people. Uh, there are great opportunities to, just to fuel uh, new ideas. But we really need uh, to get on with it. As a, as a bit of an aside, I um, many years ago I used to do a bit of work in Silicon Valley in the very early stages because my background's in the computer industry. Mm-hmm. And, and I kid you not that you would go to a meeting in a, in a building in Silicon Valley and by the time you got to the car park, they'd be ringing you and saying, have you got it done yet? Yeah. I mean, the, the speed and the, and the expectation there is what we don't have. Yes. But we could be the equivalent Silicon Valley. I don't, I don't like to use the term in New Silicon Valley. I think we, we could be the Asia equivalent of Silicon Valley. Our focus needs to be very much... Asia-focused and attracting people who want to build business into Asia because it's in the same same time zone. And but, is, but, is that the type of paradigm that innovation in the city is 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 trying to shift? You know, to to create establish a culture of urgency and innovation, um, and to um, and, and I guess a, a, a big uh, move away from that conservatism that's defined our state over recent times. Absolutely, and we, and we need to and we need to think globally. I mean, we need to develop businesses that are pushing into into Asia. Our our current situation in terms of exports is pathetic. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we and, and that that's a strong word, but probably underplayed a bit. Well, I think we were a net food importer for the uh, for the first time a couple of years yep. ago. Um, yep, but- uh, you know, for an economy that was built off the back of the, uh, on the back the sheep's back, we uh, that's <laughs> that would frighten many. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, well, I mean, it's not, and it's not only primary products, but we still only export four percent of gross state product. By any industry average, we should be around nine percent. So we're less than half of where we need to be. Our, our growth rate um, is also appallingly low. It's uh, it's less than two percent, and it should be five, six, seven percent. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think we've got a problem here uh, that. A lot of companies don't understand that they have got things they can export. You can export skills. You can export all manner of things. You can build businesses interstate and overseas. I mean, the only reason we need to increase population is because our population isn't big enough to support our own economy. So therefore, we need to we need to bring money in from uh, from interstate and overseas, and we need to get um, we need to get better at that. Yeah. Um, it's it's something that um, I, I I describe it as Adelaide apathy. Yeah. Um, and and it's the, the traditional successful business here run by people that are, um, I guess they've reached the stage where their kids go to a nice private school, they live in a nice suburb, they drive um, a late model car, as does their wife, and they go on the European vacation every year and they go, hey, life's pretty good, we're done, we don't need to do anymore. Well, they're the people we need, I guess, to be taking more risks yes. and growing their businesses and employing more people. And, and if they don't, we've got... Um, We've got problems. Um, so, so in as much as our, uh, you know, our lifestyle attracts so many, it can also lure people into a uh, complacency, perhaps, is what you're suggesting there. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we've got tremendous opportunities on on all manner of fronts. I mean, again, to go back to the Silicon Valley thing, that that grew because uh, in that area, which was uh, originally San Jose, it was originally orange groves. Um, hmm. I know a couple of people in Adelaide who were. Uh, Come from there. One of one of who went to school was Steve Jobs at the at uh, the high school wow. in in San Jose, <laughs> and they, they used to grow oranges and apples. That that and that's as little as forty years ago. Uh, but what happened is there were good universities that came into that area and grew, and there were not far down the road big defence contracts. Well, mm. what does Adelaide have? Big yeah. defence contracts and really good universities. As uh, Dave, as you know, I do a bit of work at. Carnegie Mellon, which is a small yes. university in Adelaide. We only have 160 students, but uh, internationally, um, we're based out of Pittsburgh, we're the number one university in the world for robotics. Uh, and we attract some incredible students from overseas. And we've just launched uh, a program with the university, which they're calling the Piranhas Feast. So it's kind of the reverse of the shark tank, mm. where, where uh, we bring businesses into the, into the Piranhas the oh, students, yeah, and and they eat up the ideas. So we've ju- we've just kicked our first one off, um, and the and the plan is um, we find businesses significantly sized businesses because we're talking about you know businesses that want to invest half a million bucks. So oh. it's, you know it's clearly not for everybody. Yeah, who've um, got a big problem, and and we put in there um, people who've got an entrepreneurial mindset, you know maybe like me, um, who work with them to take that problem. And turn it on the, you know, the opposite side of every problem is an opportunity. Mm-hmm. Turn it into an opportunity for a global business that could become an export, that could become a several hundred million dollar business. The business owner then goes to the university and pitches to the student. So we, we go to the student base and go, we've got this opportunity. We've done it. We just, we've only just started our first one. And our first one's about making beaches safer. And oh, I'll right. give you a little snapshot on that in a minute. Yep, sure. Um, the, the business owner comes in, pitches to the students, this is what we want to do, this is what we want to build, who wants to be part of it? Who wants to join our company? Who wants to grow a job in our company? Who wants to become a potential shareholder? 
who might want to take this business over and, and own it? Um, and, and they bring their skills and their hunger and their desire in and we grow a business. So the first one that we've started with uh, is with my colleague um, uh, Shane Yeen, whom I would describe as Adelaide's probably currently most successful and, and most serial entrepreneur. Hmm. Uh, Shane does a lot of things out of the US. He's got an office on Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood and he owns the marketing rights to the Hollywood sign, just to give you an idea of where Shane sits in the world. But he's also got a helicopter business which does all the beach patrols for South Australia and Western Australia. Right. Uh, it also does all of the uh, analysis of power lines. What, what, of a power di- lines. what a diverse array of <laughs> interests. Well, he's also into uh, video and movie production and games. I mean, he, he built a game, a board games business that um, is his number one client with Walmart in the US. Wow. So he's a, he's a very he's a serious you know, guy. Out, out there thinker. And, and so Adelaide was, based and still living um, in Adelaide? Uh, Adelaide born and bred, um, spends probably three, six months a year in um, in uh, California, has a house in the Hollywood Hills and a house at Henley Beach. Oh, wow. Okay. So you could uh, be tripping over him if you're getting coffee at the Square Wonder. Correct. Well, his house at Henley Beach has got a helipad on the roof. He just hasn't necessarily got permission to take off and land yet. <laughs> I get a feeling that <laughs> but, is yet as well by the sounds of it. But no, you're saying it's inevitable. <laughs> uh, he's, he's an irresistible force. <laughs> but what, so what the... the, the um, the business we're developing is uh, on, on beaches, a helicopter or a fixed-wing aircraft provides every beach in Adelaide about four and a half minutes of coverage every weekend. So if there's no sharks, there's no danger during that four and a half minutes, we're just wasting time. We're just, it's just window dressing. Yeah. So what we, are, what we are coming up with, and we're well down the path, and we brought the students in now to really add extra value to it, is... Um, and people at Henley Beach and uh, and uh, Glenelg might have seen uh, these things going up and a little bit of experimenting we've done. Um, it's basically a, a helium balloon that goes up and sits above the beach mm-hmm. and it has built into it um, uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning um, and um, what they call computer vision, cameras that can interpret things. Mm-hmm. So so what, the, what that system will do because everyone talks about drones on beaches and whatever. Well, there's two issues with drones. Shane has a drone company, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, two issues with drones. They don't stay in the air for long. They yeah. take someone organised and on the ground to drive them, yeah. which lifesavers generally may not be doing. Yes. Uh, and you can't fly them within six kilometres of an airport, which rules uh, out half of the metropolitan beaches of Adelaide. Exactly, yeah. So what this uh, system is capable of doing is, count, is it counts the number of people on the beach it counts those in the water, those out of the water as they come and go. They adjust the number. We don't know who they are. It just looks down and can see figures. Uh, so the moment someone has gone missing out of that system and the numbers don't add up for more than 30 seconds, it can trigger an alarm to the lifesavers and say someone's gone missing at this exact location. Wow. So the lifesavers can get straight to that position as quickly as possible. We're looking also then at the potential of launching a drone which drops a lifesaving device and whatever, whatever. Incredible. We're also now in the process of training it to see sharks, which is not that easy to do because there's a lot of things in the water that look like sharks. Some of it's seaweed, some of it's dolphins. Yeah. So what they're able to do is 24, well, it won't be 24-7 because I won't do it in the dark. During the daylight hours, it will be scanning the, as far as the eye can see uh, for sharks and automatically trigger an alarm. The next thing we're training it to do 
is um, not a big problem in, in Adelaide beaches, but certainly around the world, um, trying to get to, to spot rips. Oh, so that we yes. can alert people to where the rips are on the beach and where you should definitely not not train yeah. and not, uh, sorry, and not swim. Yeah. Um, and, and there's a whole bunch of things that can, can flow on from that. So, you know, they're the kind of big ideas, I guess, we can get going by, by taking someone who has um, a business already, they have customers, they have credibility, they have capital, which is what startup businesses lack, put them together with an entrepreneurial mindset that looked at things in a different way and then go to a bunch of really smart students. And, and these, these young people at Carnegie Mellon are amazingly clever and driven. They, they, we, we very rarely have a, a full-time student from Adelaide because the tuition fees are $96,000 a year, mm-hmm. um, but they are one of the most sought-after master's degrees in the world. Hmm. So we attract uh, people from China, from India, from from Africa on scholarships. There's a there's a, a Downer Rand scholarship that brings students in each year from Africa, mm-hmm. uh, from South America. And, the, and these people are, when you talk to them, are really driven. They, a, they've always wanted to go to Carnegie Mellon, you know, since they were kids. They've seen the Carnegie Mellon brand. They know it stands for innovation and excellence, so they want to come here. Yeah. Uh, but secondly, uh, they want to make a difference, and, and we... we um, we conducted interviews for this uh, project we've just started where we had 20 people put their hand up and say they want to be part of it. We sat down um, the next day and spoke to all 20 of them. They gave us three-minute pitch on who they were and why they should be part of this business. And one young man said, um, I come from the Philippines. I come from a very poor background. And anyone who's ever been to the Philippines knows a very poor background is, is dirt poor. I mean, the poverty in, in, in the Philippines is, is as bad as you'll see anywhere in the world. Uh, and he said, I know how to hustle and I've got grit. Yep. Anyway, he talked about his academic qualifications, which are beyond reproach, uh, and his experience. And I said at the end, what, what, give me an example of hustle and grit. My phone, am I back? Yeah, you're here. Okay, <laughs> sorry, I, I was relaxing too much. Um, uh, and he said, "Well, I did my first degree in the Philippines without access to a computer. I, I uh, just used spare time I found in internet cafes and friends' houses." And he said, I, "I got through the whole degree without access to a computer." Now, in this day and age, anyone who's been to university recently knows that's damn near impossible. So, so these people come here really driven to be. To make a success of, of life, so there, there's an order, in order number. There, and the, another quick example is the uh, Australian government is now providing three-year visas to people who have young people who have proven entrepreneurial records overseas. Mm-hmm. They can come to Australia and build a business in in three years, uh, and then if they've been successful, they can then apply for permanent residence, etc. Yeah. Uh, there's a young lady in Adelaide um, came from France. Um, Probably six months ago, she has built a business from scratch up, which is um, taking um, rye, um, taking rye, and turn it into straws, biodegradable straws to replace plastic straws. Ah, right. Um, so she's solving so, one problem and creating, you know, something different out of it. So yeah. she's built that from scratch, and I think it's tomorrow she launches a crowdfunding program to get people to support it, to put money into it. So there's a, an example, and we brought someone from overseas, and in a very short period of time, 
they, they're creating a business. You know, it's not going to employ massive numbers of people, but it's showing um, kind of what, what can be done. And I, and I guess just to finish on this note, um, Shane and I have a, a shared aspiration to do something that's, that happens in America these days and, and in communities not unlike Adelaide, where everybody wants to build new jobs for their kids. Yeah. So the, the plan is to go out to the public en masse and say, if you want to keep your, job, your kids in Adelaide and you want to build new jobs in Adelaide, we've set up a fund. You can invest in our fund mm. and we will find the best startup businesses that are going to employ lots of people who are going to stay in Adelaide and we'll invest in them. Yeah. You, you'll probably make some money out of it. Put 50 bucks, 100 bucks, 1,000 bucks, a million bucks, whatever it is. So put some of your super, super into it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and, and we will commit that these businesses that we grow will, A, employ significant numbers of people and, B, remain committed to Adelaide for the long term. So that's something we're hoping that we might, well, we're hoping to get that up in 2020. And I think that might be a, a significant answer. And, and why the government hasn't done this, I don't really know, but I guess it's not the kind of thing governments do. They, I mean, the government keeps telling me in the, in the entrepreneurial space, we don't back winners. Hmm. And I won't. And I won't tell you what my answer. No, we don't, no, 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 no. I'll get that right. We're not in the business of picking winners. My answer generally is, yeah, you're pretty good at picking losers. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I hope there's nobody from the government listening, and if they are, I don't really care. <laughs> in, in, innovation in the city does not get one cent, and has never asked for one cent for the government for any of the work we do. We 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 fund everything ourselves. And, and do you think that just having that level of independence makes you think more creatively about how you are going to attract people, where if, if you were heavily backed by the government, there seems to be more of a, a dependence on policy to do what perhaps the private sector can do? Absolutely. I mean, I, I work on, and I've always worked on the basis of to seek uh, forgiveness and ask for permission. And if yeah. you start relying on government grants, you, you're working within their rules all the time. And far too many of our young people who are starting businesses now are worried about grants, mm. are worrying about venture capital. Uh, now, I, I was in the startup world, I guess, back in the computer industry in the, in the 70s and the 80s. There were no grants. Mm. There was no venture capital. There was no investors. There was only one thing that existed then and exists today. They're called customers. Mm. And if you want to build a business and you can't get yourself a customer, then what the hell are you going to oh, You're wasting the public money building a business. At, at ThinkLab, which is Adelaide University's startup incubator, which isn't restricted to just students from Adelaide University, it's open to people who've got good ideas and want to build a business. We now have a thing called the 90 day sprint that you have to pass before you get a permanent position in, in ThinkLab, which gives you a desk and it gives you mentor and it gives you access to lots of other people. Yeah. And the 90-day and the sprint is about you proving that in 90 days you can build a business, have it structured, have it functional, have a minimum viable product, and that is just, you know, you might want to be wanting to build a rocket and you start off with a launch pad or, you know, yeah. just start off something that's doable early. Mm-hmm. So you, build, you can build a minimum viable product or service, whatever the offering is, and get a customer. And, and you're able to repeat that cycle a number of times until you can prove to us that you know how to build a business and how to get um, a customer. Because that's the, I mean, that, there's nothing changed about that. I mean, it's exactly how your business runs. It's how every business runs. We need to find customers. We need to build great relationships with those customers. And we need to provide them with, a, with the need 
the unmet need they're looking for. That's that's business 101. Well, and I, and I think um, in, an, in, in our environment, that's vital. Um, we're, unfortunately, we're not in that, um, uh, that space where there's a tons of um, venture capital money floating around and, mm -hmm. and people willing to throw millions of, of, of dollars at, a, at an idea that might work. And so um, having practical business fundamentals underpinning your, um, uh, your venture is absolutely vital. And, and, and I hope serves as an example to the rest of the world because I kind of get the feeling in the next uh, downturn there'll be a, 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 lot, of, a lot of those uh, companies that are surviving only on investment funds and not actually producing anything are going to find mm -hmm. themselves in trouble. And I think therein lies the opportunity for businesses based in Adelaide that have their fundamentals well set? Yeah, well, well a lot of people talk about, uh, you know, how some of these startups do things different and, uh, you know, they're not successful and this, that and the other one. Well, I, I always use a great example to, uh, to uh, startup groups that I mentor. It's is um, Airbnb. Mm. Uh, the guys that built that business and that was built because a guy had a need to make money and he had some spare space in his lounge and he, had a, he got himself a couple of air beds. And he put the air beds in the, in the lounge, and he and he started renting them out, which is the air of Airbnb. Oh, there you uh, go. I didn't I didn't realise that. I didn't realise that's that, what the air denoted was, was the was the bedding that was a, situation. That was the humble beginnings. <laughs> I mean, the beginnings the beginnings of Uber was a guy that got sick of standing on the side of the road in New York every Friday afternoon when he was trying to get a cab to go to the airport to fly back home, and because all the cabs were going in the other direction because it was a change of shifts. Mm. And he just said, there's got to be a better way than a taxi company, so he invented Uber. Uh, but Airbnb, those guys, they service their initial customers' houses like you wouldn't believe. Yeah. They just bent over backwards for everything until they had a solid base and they didn't start scaling up to the next level until they knew they had a few hundred people who completely obsessively uh, were part of, uh, of their vision. They, they used to do things like uh, pretend to be photographers going out to take yeah. photographs of one of their one of their people's houses. Yeah. And they weren't there just to take the photos. They were there to assess how those people found the service from Airbnb, what they'd like to see more, what you know, what the company lacked. So that, that they wanted to be that close to their customers without their customers necessarily knowing that, you know, and they were even there. And that, that market, that early on market research is what, what set them up for growth and, 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 and scalable growth as well. Yep. Yeah, well, I mean, you, you know, a lot of people out there, you know, sling mud at businesses, not doing this and not doing that. But <clears throat> I'm pretty sure that any successful business, particularly these days, even more than ever, that doesn't really, really, really look after their staff. You know, the old notion of mistreated staff and whatever, I think that's, that's well um, dated because now getting and retaining staff is the core to the success of any business, but also the the servicing, the over-servicing almost of your customer base. It's yeah. absolutely vital because the biggest cost in business is acquiring new customers. So why would you lose any that you've got? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I, I think you've gone a long way to explaining that, uh, in, that Adelaide doesn't control its own narrative very well because there would be a lot of Adelaideans out there right now who would um, be surprised to hear about the innovations that are happening just down the road and, and mightn't be aware that we're leading the way in terms of space technology and, uh, and education and that uh, these, um, these start-ups are, are, are coming to Adelaide uh, to, to make, make 
Adelaide their home um, and, and the growth and the potential because, they, you know, our whole economy nationally is, uh, is far less productive than what it was just a few years ago and if it wasn't for capital growth in properties, uh, we would, uh, our GDP would reflect a, well, a recessionary position um, and uh, so, you know, it is, but it, it's the economy of ideas and implementation uh, that will give us exponential growth in the future. As you're saying, these, these are businesses that are, that are starting with one or two people and that are growing to 50 in a matter of months, but then the, the, the potential upside in terms of revenue isn't in the hundreds of thousands, it's in the hundreds of millions. Mm-hmm. Um, which uh, just, uh, just and, and I think that, that that just serves to underpin that point that Adelaide is not in control of its narrative, or or those mm-hmm. those people that represent us on larger stages aren't necessarily uh, sharing the full story about um, where Adelaide sits um, and 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 where it's um, and where it, it where it sits right now is certainly serving as a, a platform for greater things in the not too distant future. Well, we, we've got to think global. You know, the, 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 it is very easy to access the world's media. Let me give you a quick example of an Adelaide business that has a, a huge now global market. Um, they're in the fashion business, mm-hmm. um, Adelaide Fashion Labels. They operate out of a uh, building uh, close to the corner of North Terrace and Pulteney Street. Mm-hmm. Uh, they used to have stores. They built a presence in New York and uh, London and um, uh, LA and Hong Kong. Uh, but they've now closed all their stores. They run a totally online fashion business, but they target each of those countries and each of those markets individually. It's not just one big shopping site that everybody in the world goes to. They have their LA site, their New York site, etc. Mm-hmm. But they have the most sophisticated business intelligence system I've ever seen, and I've seen a few. If you go into their offices, the walls are covered in screens monitors that have got all manner of facts and figures and statistics and trends and so their designers are looking at what the trends are in particular markets today Um, they know what's selling today they know what the price points are today Mm. and therefore they're able to manufacture close to those markets and have those products available and as they become available they they were saying the other day that um, something I was talking to them about that um, during the GFC the market in New York for um, items between $150 and $250 collapsed overnight. The people just stopped buying anything over $150. Wow. So they rejigged their entire site, their entire offering, their entire pricing structure to just reflect and, and run with that instantly. So, I mean, they're a great example of running a global business out of Adelaide. They employ, I don't know, 50 or 60 people in Adelaide and they drive this business, they've got representatives and agents and whatever in different markets, but they focus on those markets individually. And that's another thing I think we need to learn, that people think that, oh, Asia is China. Well, Asia, I mean, if you want to go globally and you want to build a market in Asia, don't go to, don't go to China because it's too big. Mm. It's way too big for most people. You know, if you go there with a container of wine and people like it, the next order will be for 100 containers. Yeah, and in fact, and in fact, there is a wine company in Adelaide uh, that has a bottling plant at Osborne that only uh, prepares wine for the Chinese market, and they and they ship every week ten containers of wine to China. Oh, incredible! That's the kind of scale that that China is going to require. But we need to be looking at markets like Vietnam. Uh, Vietnam is r- rapidly growing; great mm. market. 
um, Malaysia, etc. But but people here won't invest in in that kind of knowledge. They they figure if they go on a trade mission and they shake a few hands and they meet an agent, everything will be fine. They they set up to export. It doesn't work. It falls over and all gets too hard. I mean, there are a lot of ex- there's a lot of expertise around. But that's the other thing I think Adelaide business doesn't want to pay people to do things, and they and they have a reluctance to um, employ people that are smarter than them. There's a lot of great people who've moved to Adelaide from various parts of the world that gravitate to us, and they can't get a job. You know, I, I get them interviews with all manner of people, and they just don't get to, to first base because there's this kind of myopic vision a bit here at times that we don't want to employ these people because they might show us up. Yeah. My, my, the, the secret to any success I've ever had is uh, is never employ anyone, never employ anyone unless they're smarter than me. Yeah. Because they, because they're going to make me look good. Now, yeah. If you if you unemploy people that are not smarter than you, well, what the hell are you going to learn? Nothing. Yeah. Is it well? So, it kind of descends from a militaristic kind of hierarchical sense of mm-hmm. running running an operation rather than uh, a, a new economy uh, way of uh, thinking about information as the wealth and that's contained within the people you're yep. employing and um, and it's that that kind of uh, that kind of shift that um, I, is certainly happening happening in the sectors that you're involved in but uh, I think is uh, slow to be picked up uh, in other sectors of our economy. Well, and the other thing is collaboration, you know, working with other people to build bigger and better pies. We, we still have a mentality here, and I see it every day, in the world that I work in, in the startup world and the new knowledge world. Um, you know, if I give this bit away, then that's, a, that's another piece of the pie I don't have, whereas a lot of people, particularly in the US, they work on the basis of, hey, if I give you a couple of slices of my pie, let's get together and we'll build a really big pie. Bigger pie, yeah. Because it really is about <clears throat> the development of new knowledge. There's a there's an IO, um, IOCD, OC, OCDC, no, or whatever. It's Economic Development Overseas People, OECD. Yeah. Yep. Uh, a number called BIRD, uh, Business Enterprise Research and Development. Mm-hmm. And that number directly can relate to growth and employment for every thousand dollars thousands of dollars you put into research and development it grows jobs <clears throat> and what happens is new businesses become net employers that's the, the people like i talked about with Mariota. they're growing massive numbers of jobs mm. giving money to existing businesses doesn't go to new jobs they are they are net lost losers of jobs because what happens is they take money and it goes to the shareholders mm. it goes to the bottom line it goes to the profit because they've stopped growing um if you look in Europe and France, I've had a little bit to do with, um, 80% of money invested in research and development comes out of business. Only 20% comes from government. Mm. In Australia, 20% comes from business, 80% comes from the government. Incredible. Businesses here are saying, we don't want to invest in research and development. That's a, that's a government job, but it's not because research and development is what drives new knowledge. New knowledge is what drives the new economy if you like mm. so we need to be we need to be we need to change our thinking a lot and look at what happens elsewhere i think there's another statistic where uh, in australia 99 percent of businesses are small business uh in germany 50 percent are medium mm. you know we have we have way too many small, small businesses and we don't and and we don't grow them enough into into bigger business you know when i'm talking to bigger business i'm you know medium-sized business i'm talking those that might employ 20 people I think the number's about 20, under 20 as a, as a small business. Yeah. 
And it's interesting when we talk about numbers and employment, um, often that conversation turns to IR, but uh, we're, when you reflect upon how it is that we held on so earnestly to some of those older industries that were very investment um, intensive, mm -hmm. but in, in old economy, I, I think of Holden's when I, yep. I say this, um, IR got tied up there, but what Holden's really had was an innovation problem. Um, and well, what what the economy had was an innovation problem and a lack of it, which um, meant that we were somewhat stalled in some post-war thinking uh, when it came to IR, when it came to innovation, yep. when it came to technology and its application. Well, I worked for uh, I worked for Chrysler and Mitsubishi in the seventies and early eighties, mm -hmm. and and I could tell you that back then it was pretty obvious to me that the motor industry didn't have a future because it was so labour intensive. It was its inability to, to adapt to change. I mean, the production line was a great concept when it was put together back in the early 1900s. Mm. But we moved away from that and the, and the ability to take a design for a new vehicle and turn it into a product on the road was something like seven years. Yes. And and back then, Long once and I, and I, I worked in the, uh, in the computer division there, uh, and once computerisation came in and we started computerising the production line, et cetera, you know, I started to see that, that, that the, uh, the infrastructure that was required in those days to build vehicles was not going to cope with where the world was going to go. So, yeah, Australia, I mean, hanging on to Holden's, and, you know, I get held down a lot about it too. We, we hung on to them far too long and the amount of money that was invested keeping them alive, if that had gone into the space industry and new industries... 15 or 20 years ago, we'd be world leaders. Mm, yeah. But, but, you know, once again, it was a resistance to change. It's like, what do all those people do? Well, what, what, what happened to all the people who worked at Mitsubishi and Chrysler? Mm. I mean, they all got absorbed somewhere or another. People say, oh, with all this robotics and all this technology and all this, that and the other, you know, we're, you know everybody's going to be unemployed. And my answer is, I know that employment levels will continue to be high. Mm. I know there's a lot of research, like Carnegie Mellon has uh, Institute for Future Jobs. Mm. Um, it's going into where that will happen, but I can't tell you where they'll be because a lot of the jobs of the future come because something new's happened and suddenly, when you look at the car, you know, once the, once the car became a popular item for every household, the world changed dramatically overnight. Now, I mean, I talk a bit about the... Uh, uh, I line this a bit with global warming. Back in 1896, there was a, a, a world crisis known as the the Great Horse Manure Crisis of 1896, mm -hmm. because because uh, countries were urbanising, people were moving into cities, and they were filling up with people with horse and carts and horses. And of course, that produces a horse manure problem. They had great sanitation; they were cleaning it all up. But where do they store it? And they were, every city in the world was developing massive mounds of horse manure. So all the town planners of the day gathered in New York sometime in 1896 uh, to find a solution. And they walked away from that meeting saying, this problem is too big to ever be solved. Well, it was solved uh, within 10 years uh, because the, of the, of the popularisation of the automobile. Mm. And that happened really quickly. Yeah. Um, I, I, I've got a photograph that shows uh, uh, Fifth Avenue, New York, um, Easter Sunday, uh, 1906, I think it is, and there is um, there's horses and carts everywhere, and you can just see one car amongst maybe a hundred horses and carts. The same, almost the same angle. Uh, eight years later, 
almost, well, a complete reversal. You can see one horse and cart on all the rest of cars. Mm. So when change starts, it happens really quickly, like electric vehicles. And it's not happening yet, but there, there will be a tide will happen probably in the next three, four years. And, you know, people are critical of the city council putting in charging stations, whatever, but I think it's great that we're actually preparing infrastructure in advance for a change. We're not waiting mm. for the problem. Uh, driverless uh, vehicle technology, I, I would argue that any kid that hasn't started primary school yet will almost certainly never own a car. In mm. fact, I'm prepared to say they definitely will never own a car. The, the days of owning cars are, are going to go in inside the next 10 years mm-hmm. uh, because we will be about mobility. Like, I, I, I don't own a car, but I have no trouble getting around. I've got two bicycles. I've got a pass to use the bus. I know how to use a scooter. Uh, and I know how to hire a car when I need one uh, with uh, those various car hire services, and I, I can use an Uber. Well, um, let, let's, but, but that's one example. Yeah. Well, let, let's delve into that for just a moment because I think there's some implications there uh, for real estate and, and, and then some legislative uh, knock-on effects that I, uh, I think are um, bound to ensue. So um, what you were touching on there was a, a very much a subscription-based yep. model uh, where yep. uh, you might subscribe to, say, let's say, uh, Ford. And Ford, you would pay, say, Ford a, a $500 a month and for that you'll have an autonomous vehicle pick you up and take you to work. Um, on the weekends you'll have a sports car to drive uh, through the Adelaide, the beautiful Adelaide Hills, um, and uh, and when you've got a family outing, you know they'll drop you off a uh, a nice SUV so you can uh, take your mother-in-law out uh, for a drive um, and and uh, take the rest of the family with you. Um, and and uh, so you'll have these subscription-based mo- and and it won't be around cars as much as mobility options ultimately. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, and I know you've posted recently about the subscription or the rental economy, and I just wanted to kind of extrapolate a little bit and say, where do you see, see the implications there for, for real estate? Oh, I think, I think it's just the same. I, I think I'm a classy example, even though I'm not classic for my age. At 70, I should be far more settled and, and conservative than I am. Mm-hmm. But I, um, I rent a, a, a house in, uh, in North Adelaide. It's a great location. It's somewhere I want to live. It's somewhere I don't want to live forever. I don't pay an awful lot of money for what I've got. And that gives me optimum flexibility. I'm on a year-to-year lease. And if I decide, as I may well do, to go and spend six months in Singapore because of a business we're getting up there, it's really easy to do. Yeah. And so I think we are going to divide. Uh, we're going to become very much around people who own properties to rent and people who rent. Yeah. The, the notion of owning a property to live in it for the rest of my life, I, that's pretty well going to go away, I think, because, you know, I'm sitting here in my backyard working. I could be on the deck of the Queen Elizabeth or the Queen Mary or the Queen whatever mm. doing the same work, same work, cruising between, you know, the, on the Atlantic Ocean. And, and so, that, so that level of flexibility is going to influence, I think, where people want to live. You know, we, we might want to live in, in a warm climate in, in winter and come back here for summer. Yeah. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying everybody, but, you know, if 20% of the market does that, that's a hell of a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. And could you imagine a subscription service perhaps where, you know, uh, there might be somebody in Singapore that wants to spend time in Adelaide and you, 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 you're house swapping or instead of ride sharing in the vehicular sense, then you, you, you're house sharing, aren't you? There's yep. that, there's, well, I, I can see that very much becoming a real part of our economy in the, in the not-too-distant future. Well, speaking of Singapore, I know that is huge in clothing. 
if, if people don't buy clothing anywhere near as much as they used to, they will. They, they, uh, there are services that, with their AI and their machine learning, will work out the styles, the looks, or whatever that you like. And every month, they will send you a selection of outfits that are tailored for the times and the fashion and the whatever. And then you send back what you don't want. And next month, you send back that, and you get more. You know that that's happening everywhere. I mean, my, my, the classic example I use of. Um, this kind of service economy is, um, uh, you know, you won't buy, you know, if you if you own a car, of course, you wouldn't, and this happens kind of now, uh, why buy tyres? You have a subscription service with, with the tyre company and they've got sensors in the tyres. They know when they need to be replaced. They, they find out where your car's going to be. They come out, they replace the tyres and you just pay the standard service fee. I mean, it, it can apply to almost anything and, I mean, even the you know even the things in your house. You know, people people will live with rented furniture. Mm. You know, they, 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 you know, back in my youth, which is now a very long time ago, the you know the idea of renting things and not owning things was absolutely abhorrent because mm. you know I'm I'm coming off the you know a, a family that's just come out of the war. Yeah. And you know we, we we just wanted to own things. I mean, we didn't own a lot, but what we had we owned. This notion of people renting was. You know, we, we looked down on people who rented because they were obviously poor people. Yes. Uh, or people that, you know, did things differently. But I, but, uh, I honestly think these days, and, and the benefit of, of uh, moving around, as I do a bit, I've, I've lived in uh, four different locations in the last five years, mm. you don't accumulate a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah. You know, you, you, you've got enough stuff in your house for what you need, mm. and when you move... It's a really easy job to pack and move, and 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 we'll get a lot better at that. Mm. Um, you know, clothing is the same. You know, that people will get used to, and, and once again, coming out of that mentality of the scarcity mentality after the war, yeah, I find it hard to throw clothing out. But yeah. you know, that's the ultimate in circular economy in, in environmentalism. You know, continue to give your stuff to secondhand stores where other people will use it. In, in fact, I now fairly deliberately. Um, shop most of the time at um, at the salvos or one of those stores because why should i be contributing to more new stuff when there's plenty of stuff that's still got life left in it just not for the people that um, that owned it i mean i, I hear um h&m the big uh, fashion brand that's now in uh, in rundle mall they have a they carry an inventory of old stock in the order of four billion dollars hmm. because they keep having to make stuff to keep up with fashion and then the fashion moves Changes, on. Yeah. S- sadly, for the consumers of Australia, and, and I have three daughters in, the, in their twenties uh, and early thirties, they confirm this. Sadly, that uh, Australia is used as a dumping ground for H and M, so we don't see the best of their designs. We, we see as much of the old stuff as they can get rid of, yeah. which is a, a sad indictment of Australia. But yeah, no, I, <laughs> I, you know, I, I would just encourage everybody to be really open about the future. I mean, I, I you know, I might have talked about some of the things that. Um, are not good, but I, I couldn't be more optimistic about the future than, than anybody. And I, I'm fortunate enough to work with lots of great young people. Anyone who's ever critical about the younger generation, I mean, they, they're, they're not in tune with the 20-somethings the of, of this age. I mean, the, 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 the worst of the generation were probably, they're probably now in their 30s. They, I mean, they're probably my daughters. <laughs> but they're really good. They were really, they're not typical of that age. But no, there's some fantastic young people who seek out people like me for advice. Yeah. I mean, they value the advice of older people. This notion that, 
you know, young people hate old people that we see played out around climate and all that. So that, that's that's a nonsense when it comes to the business. And in fact, when I when I spoke to a young man who moved here from Spain and started a, a, what is now becoming a very successful business, um, I said, "What is it appeals to you most about Adelaide?" And he said, "The readily access to great mentors. A, there are people who've been there and done it who willingly give their advice, and they are easy to get to." Uh, and Adelaide, that, that is the great thing about, about Adelaide is its connectedness. It's, it's, it's its greatest strength and its greatest weakness. You know, the fact that there are so many people that know each other. And in the kind of world I'm in, you know, if someone says to me, I, I want to catch up with someone who can program in X, X Y, and Z, mm. I'll go, look, I don't even know what you're talking about, but I understand the question. I'll guarantee I can find that person a phone call, and mm. I can. Yeah. If I was in Sydney and Melbourne... It would be, oh, I'll have to go and meet with someone and I'll have to do this and, you know, oh, yeah, I might be able to get you an answer in three or four weeks. Yeah. That, that's the benefit we've got of being, of being connected and we need, to, we need to keep pushing that forward and that brings me back to that, that collaboration thing. There's a, there's a company in Adelaide, well, they've now moved their head office for financial reasons to Melbourne because they've listed, who have built, built the world's biggest 3D printer. This thing is the size of a tennis court. Uh, it prints in... What they call, um, uh, oh, I can't think what they're what it's called these days. Uh, it's a powder, mm-hmm. um, and that powder then turns into metal, and the, and right. the metal that um, uh, composite. I think it's composite printing. Uh, ah. The metal that this produces is lighter than aluminium, stronger than steel, and more heat, heat resistant than tungsten. Incredible. So they so they are printing. They I mean they're printing now everything from bicycle frames. To aircraft wings, and that company was developed out of Adelaide from, from an idea that someone had to improve the way welding is done, uh, and then the people they worked with who were more entrepreneurial then looked at some patents out of the CSIRO, they looked at some work that was being done in the US, they looked at a whole bunch of things and put that together and created, as I came back to again, some new knowledge that developed a whole new approach to uh, to doing something, and that and that's emanated out of Adelaide by a few people getting together and not having a blinkered vision about what what it was they were trying to achieve. Mm. Uh, it's, it's called Titanic, by the way. If you were lucky enough to buy shares um, <laughs> when they first listed, you'd be looking very good um, about now. So once again, coming back to my idea about investing, investing fifty dollars, yes. yeah, um, there are lots of great investments around. I mean, companies that are startups that might only be worth you know five cents a share. Um, they grow so rapidly and they make so much money quickly. And, and in, in the new economy, you don't even have to make a profit for your value to go up. You know, people like Uber and Netflix and some of those companies are worth hundreds of millions of dollars and many of them never made a profit. The, yeah. the, the market now values um, companies on potential and reach and, and database uh, more, more than um, – and even intellectual property isn't that important anymore. It used to be the number one thing, but now it's, 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 it's market share. Mm-hmm. So if I, if I don't have the intellectual property to, to something, but I already have a market and I know how to grow that market, then I'm going to have investors all over me who, yeah. who want to get to people who know how to get to a market. And um, just to finish up on that, at ThinkLab and places like that, there's all manner of academics who've got all manner of great ideas. Like one is uh, that I've come across. Um, he, he, has the, he has the technology that can take brainwaves into computer signals. So you, you can think your way into programming. 
and and it's, it's some of it's largely operational. But he's but he's so pig-headed that he's the only one who can do this, and he he doesn't want partners. He doesn't want anyone in the in the business. Mm. It's going to die. Yeah. I mean, uh, because because if you're not haven't got, and I describe it as the, as the uh, I mean, a great book around this. Some great work that people want to read about. Um, the way the mind works, I guess, which is really important in the days of robots. You know, with robots, we're still going to need people who can think, people who are creative, people who've got empathy, people who've got communication skills. And we forget about STEM. Robots will do STEM. We need STEAM. We need people who understand the technology but also know how to behave like a human being. Mm. Um, you need three people. One is the maven, the expert in the subject. Two is the connector, the, pe- the person who can put all of the bits together and and bring it into a business like those guys I talked about with Titanic. And then you need a salesperson, someone who, and I don't mean, you know, that that sleazy image of the salesperson, I mean someone like you, a professional salesperson who knows how to take a person's problem and turn it into a solution. Mm. But unfortunately, a lot of these boffins, they tend to look down on mere mortals like me that can do that stuff but but don't have the, you know, the Mensa score off the, off the Richter scale. Mm. So, yes, there's a lot of great stuff around, but... If we don't work together, um, it doesn't go anywhere. And, and it was Malcolm Gladwell in his book, The Tipping Point, that first came up with that. Um, that's how, how a tipping point comes about. Um, he called it an epidemic, uh, that you get those three skills come together and suddenly a great idea becomes a great product. Yeah. And, and just uh, on that subject, you know, there is a, a gross underestimation as to uh, the need for salespeople in our economy, as a matter of fact, the South Australian government um, recently, I was privy to a, a meeting of, um, of business leaders where they revealed that the uh, the number one and the number two things that businesses were calling out for were salespeople and people to manage salespeople. Yep. And uh, yep. and yet, when you look at the uh, the money that's in tertiary education, uh, the money that's being thrown at, at TAFE, there's not a single course that teaches salesmanship or mm-hmm. even yep. even the concept of it because it's so tied up with uh, as you were saying that that the sleaziness or the or the you know the the shiny shoes and the slick uh, slick back hair or the whatever it is that people yep. have as yep. a negative connotation and yep. and and I just wonder how many of those non-academic people feel like they're being left behind when in actual fact they've got the gift of communication and can play a real role in this innovation economy you're talking about. Well, universities are now waking waking up to that and starting to teach it. I'm I'm running a uh, a little course at uh, Carnegie Mellon soon um, uh, called Pitch Like a Ringmaster, <laughs> and it's about and it's about how to sell your idea, how to get up in front of a group of people. And sell your idea. How to follow up? How to how to take? And it's not just your idea. It's you. You know whether you want a job or whatever. Understanding how to communicate a particular set of circumstances that could benefit someone else. Um, Carnegie Mellon also have a, a full time uh, communications um, uh, course, which whether you're studying IT or AI or whatever, you need to go through this because you know they don't turn out students. Who are not capable of building a business. So they're they're remit when they were first founded by uh, Andrew Carnegie, who was the founder of the steel industry in the US and uh, at one stage the wealthiest man in the world. He founded the university on the basis that they produce people who are capable of going out to the world and creating new businesses. So a core fundamental there, and that course is run by um, uh, a friend of mine, David Griggs, 
<clears throat> if anyone <clears throat> ever wants to learn uh, speaking skills in Adelaide, go and see David at the speaker studio. But he um, he comes out of a background of a, a NIDA-trained actor mm-hmm. who ran his own business. He's not an academic. And, in fact, there are a number of people. Well, I'm, I'm far from an academic. I don't, I don't, even, I don't even have a degree. <laughs> and, I get, and I get to lecture at university. I mean, how good is that? <laughs> but, that's, but that's a change. And, that, and that's an American university. Mm-hmm. Uh, happening much slower in Australian universities, the understanding that the relevance of universities has to change dramatically. And I, and I think the, the future of universities will be more about, it won't be about degrees. It won't be about doing predefined courses. It will be the, the degree of me. So mm-hmm. I need to learn um, some commercial stuff, some scientific stuff, some engineering stuff. And I build my own my own degree. I mean, the, the, the number of people going to university and doing law yeah. uh, I heard a number the other day. There's, there's something like 700 people studying law in South Australia, and, and it's predicted that the um, various law firms have maybe each year 10 vacancies. Yeah. So, so they're studying law. They're never going to be practicing lawyers, mm. but that skill will be used in in other areas. So, why have why go through that whole law process when what you really need is to pick this, 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 and this as part of your commerce as part of your sales as part of your engineering or whatever mm. uh and and the the notion of um, uni degrees and qualifications is also starting to go away a lot of the consulting firms i know in singapore now they don't uh, they don't rate your cv based around your degrees they, they rate it based around how do you measure up with what it is they're looking for mm. and it doesn't matter whether you've got a degree or not if you if you're the person who's capable of solving their problem and and that's another thing i guess we we kind of say to kids at university not what do you want to be because that locks you in degree what what's the big problem in the world that you'd like to solve yeah that's a great and that's a good question. way to think about yeah. it that might draw you into environmental science or engineering or yeah. rocket propulsion or whatever yeah um so yeah i think i mean education is a big export for adelaide i think it's number two behind uh, various forms of product well it is number two strongly number two mm-hmm. but we need to we need to address that as well because uh, a lot of those students come from china and china is now building its own um massive um education business mm-hmm. uh and that's that one one of the fears um not fears one of the things that, that australia has to come to terms with is that China is going to stop being our major market in the foreseeable future uh, because they're going to stop needing what we have because they're going to have a lot of their own. There, there, are, there are vineyards in China that would make the Barossa Valley look like a postage stamp. Mm. I mean, they are bringing in our expertise. They are growing all of their own grapes, etc. So that's one example. And they're, and they're not great wine drinkers. I mean, it's a, you know, they, they pop up a lot of the Australian industry, but it's a very small number of people that do it. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, but the massive problem that China really proposes is uh, over the next five years they're going to grow another somewhere between two and four hundred million people who will enter the middle class. Yeah, and these are people who will have thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars worth of disposal income. Mm. They're going to want fridges. They're going to want television. They're going to want microwaves. They're going to want all the stuff that we have. Yes. So where are we going to get it from? Yeah. I mean, we've got a, we've got a manufacturing problem in a lot of areas in that we're not making stuff, but maybe we still could be making for our own economy because we've become reliant on China to make it for us. Mm. Four hundred million people they're going to chew up, they're going to chew up those manufacturing. They're going to be looking after themselves and you know bugger Australia. So part of the problem we've got 
is our government's thinking, you know, election cycles. Mm. In places like China, they think in terms of, of centuries. I mean, the, the current government is now really working to a plan that I think they're in, a, they're in part of the 30 years into a 50-year plan or something. They know where they're going. You know, you see in China, people laugh at all of these towns that have been built. There's no, no people in them. Mm. That, that's part of the plan. I mean, they've, they've built the city because they know they're going to move people in there eventually once the financial circumstances are right. Yeah. And, and that, that short-term government thinking is a, is a real Achilles heel. Um, you know, I look, at, I look at big statements like we've got, to, we've got to build a new road between Mount Barker and Adelaide because mm. there's going to be more people commuting between Mount Barker and Adelaide. Why do they need to commute? Mm. Why aren't they working in Mount Barker? Why aren't they working from home? Why aren't we building things for them in Mount Barker? Yes. Why does everything have to be in the CBD? Mm. And and if people need to compute to the CDB, CBD, why do they need to do it in a car? Why isn't there, you know, a high-speed transit system down the middle of the, of the southeastern freeway? Yeah. You know, they're thinking in terms of what they can announce before the next election. Exactly. Um, yeah. Not not thinking about, you know, driverless vehicles, you know, the stuff you were talking about before. Yeah. You know, the nature of Mount Barker and some of those satellite areas around it becomes quite different. They become far more self-sustained. More more people actually move there when you don't have to go from there to the city. Yes, exactly. Yeah. You know, that's a barrier at the moment. Oh, I can't, I, I'd love to live out, you know, in the country just out of Mount Barker or even out Roseworthy and places like that. But, oh, you know, it's a drag coming to the city. And my, my question is, well, the only reason you've got to come into the city is your, your boss obviously doesn't trust you. Yes. You could be sitting at home getting all that work done and come in once or twice a week or go to appointments or whatever and organise your week such that you can work from home. But once again, our mindset is we struggle to work from home. Yeah. I, well, then, because we get distracted. That's the, that's the problem. Well, I think from what, what you were um, you, you touched on on several occasions, there seems to be this real link. You know, we you know we're we're only a few generations away from from a depression, uh, then a world war that decimated the world economy, and we we're really yep. the children of people who had a scarcity mindset and were very fixed and and rigid in their thinking and conservative to the extent that and and and. For very good reason, because to delineate too far away from those conventions could well mean the end of civilization or the end of uh, this uh, this wonderful experiment, which was uh, the prosperity of post-war uh, Australia. And uh, and there was a lot to like about that era, and people are very nostalgic about it. And um, uh, but I, I think there's um, as much as things are going to change dramatically in the foreseeable future, and all those things that uh, you've been discussing. Um, there's one inescapable as far as I can see, and that is um, in as much as almost everything inside the house is likely to change and the world around the house, the, the, that concept of bricks and mortar in itself is unlikely, even though we might not necessarily own it. We might rent, we might subscribe, we might part own, we might uh, have it, hold a share in a company that part owns property that we share in its use of, but uh, the, the bricks and mortar itself and the, and the legacy that we're really going to have to deal with is that which you're talking about now, which is we're still very much locked into a post-war planning uh, dystopia uh, that, is, it, that served us very well when we were driving vehicles um, around roads and uh, having to stop at service stations and shops. But what happens in a world where you don't go to the shops anymore because what you need is dropped off by a drone on your, or an autonomous vehicle 
by your front door? What, what, what happens in, in your world when uh, you don't need to leave the house to go to work because uh, you've got all of the technology at your fingertips that enables you to be more productive uh, where it is, uh, whether it be at home or just down the road at, at your coffee shop? And what won't change is probably uh, how our suburbs look in the foreseeable future. Or do you disagree with that? that, um, that oh, no, I, I don't. But what I, what I would suggest, you know, anyone who's investing money in parking stations and shopping centres, well, they, I mean, good luck to them because I don't think there's any future for shopping centres. I mean, they're, they're going out backwards in America already. I mean, they're being converted to warehouses and all manner of other things. Yeah. And parking stations are the same. I know the Adelaide City Council has plans for all of its parking stations in 10 years' time as a number of cars in the city on much less than 10 years' time. The number of cars in the city reduces, and then you go to and then you go to the other hangover of, of the post-war era, of of the the terrible diet we now have. Yes, I mean, and 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 the amount of land that's required for food production. Something like forty percent of all crops that are grown are grown to feed the animals we eat. <laughs> now that seems to me to be just uh, you know as a new new convert to vegetarianism. Mm-hmm. For health reasons and for environmental reasons, not not for any other reasons. I mean, I, I mean who would have thought five years ago I'd be going to the vegan festival tomorrow? <laughs> um, but but that's another whole area that needs to change. I mean, our diet has become so bad because we've got such an abundance. So we're creating new ways to produce shitty food. You know, more additives, more more processing, uh, and we and you know, there's a, a good book. That's, or something like, you know, um, digging your grave with your knife and fork. Mm. Uh, we eat way too much meat, mm-hmm. uh, way too much dairy. I mean, you, now you're really getting me on my, on my hobby horse. <laughs> and, 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 you know, in a world where South Australia has been genetically modified free, which is an enormous marketing advantage Huge. in the future around the world, mm. the government and their wisdom have yielded to the farmers who said, oh, no, if we, we, you know, if we were allowed to be genetically modified, we could produce more crops, whatever, whatever. Mm. Instead of looking and saying, well, maybe we're producing the wrong crops. Yes. We're trying to grow the wrong stuff in the wrong place. Yeah. Uh, we're not marketing what we have. I mean, Kangaroo Island is going to remain genetically modified free because there is a market for that. And it's, a, it's an increasing market. You know, trying to find you know, proper organic food and whatever, if you want to do that, is really difficult. But mm. it comes back to... You know, we're a product of our conditioning. Yes. And and we and we're not looking far enough down the track to the way the world's gonna change. Once again you go you go to China and China is embracing lots of Western things, some of them good, many of them bad. But in many ways in that they don't have to unlearn what, what we knew, like their mm. patterns of shopping and online shopping. They they they're not they're not coming off a base of comparing with, with the way we used to shop because they didn't used to shop. Mm. Now the world's at their feet and they're powering ahead. I mean, in, in, in terms of, you know, this notion of uh, China being the factory for the world, that's, that's pretty much gone. And Africa is now the factory for China. Yeah. Uh, China is now at the high end and making high-quality goods and whatever. But to give you a quick example of people in Adelaide that do think outside the square, one of our great supporters is um, Andrew Rogers, an industrial designer. And mm-hmm. it, it, always fascinating to sit and talk with an industrial designer who mm-hmm. worked out how to make things work better, look better, uh, you know, make, make stuff left out of leftovers. Yeah. But Andrew, Andrew, like any of those guys, likes to be in control of, of the cycle from the design to the finished product. But he also knows that you need to have them make products now in markets where it is more cost-effective. Mm. So instead of 
woe is me, China's too hard, how do I make China work? He, he's gone into a joint venture in China where he owns the factory in China. So he's in China at the moment. He goes there uh, uh, probably once every two or three months. He oversees what happens in the factory. So he's an Adelaide guy who does the design here, does the manufacturing in China. The money comes into Adelaide. That's the best way of doing things, not go, well, you know, we've got to wind up our manufacturing um, uh, company because we can't make it anymore. No, go to what you're good at. Go to the design. Go to the market. Go to all that kind of stuff and 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 build your facility somewhere where it's more cost-effective to manufacture. You know, mm. likewise with a project that I'm doing around artificial intelligence. Um, the guys who run the company now live in Adelaide, but their factory, if you like, is in India where people mm. have got all the skills in the world and expect far less to do. I mean, just as a quick example on that, there's a there's a, a website called Fiverr, F-I-V-E-R-R. Mm -hmm. Yes. You, you go to Fiverr when you want people to do jobs for you. So It's an outsourcing app, yeah. Yeah, well, I was looking this morning at, you know, redoing my profile as a as a keynote speaker. Mm -hmm. And so I, give, I Googled, you know, one-page bios, whatever. It took me to Fiverr. Hmm. On Fiverr, I've got people that are offering to do jobs that I couldn't myself do or probably pay a graphic artist to do for 15 bucks, yeah. and they'll have it back to me in a day. Yeah. Now, now, and we're not ripping them off. I mean, the, no. the, 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 the standard of living and the amount of money they expect is way less. It's going to mm. change, mm. but why not use that to increase our own productivity rather than go, oh, well, I can't do that because it's so damn expensive. So, you know, business cards, any of that kind of stuff, mm. I would now just go straight to Fiverr. Well, it's interesting you say that. We, we didn't go to uh, Fiverr, but we did use Design Crowd when it came to mm -hmm. um, uh, working out our logo. And, uh, I mean, it was an entirely satisfactory experience, something that would have ordinarily cost us uh, thousands and thousands of dollars dealing with a marketing company that wanted to put on all of their add-ons and additional services mm -hmm. and take over other aspects of, of the business. Um, but we were able to uh, jump on, send an email, quick brief. Um, we, yep. we have people competing from around the world, and, and the quality of designs was exceptional and uh, we ended up uh, picking two designers and asked them to collaborate. One was in Croatia and the other one in Turkey and yep. uh, they worked online um, and developed a, a logo that with a little bit of finessing became our real logo which has mm -hmm. been tremendous. You know, we, we've we yep. got so much positive feedback from people with respect to it who, who think we're a big international company and uh, they think we're much larger than what we are and then when they find out that we're a, a, a local independent, they're, they're, you know, they're heartened to the extent that we've been able to present ourselves in, in such a way and really it was a, uh, I mean, I think it cost us maybe a few hundred dollars in total and uh, mm -hmm. uh, really a process that would have otherwise cost tens of thousands and of course you know, when, when you uh, you take that money, and people go, well, that's a saving. But often in business, what a business will do is just reinvest that back into the business, which has a positive knock-on effect elsewhere in the economy. So it's not like money necessarily left the economy because we outsourced it to somebody overseas. That money that we saved, I, I can assure you, we, we we saved it and we spent it back into our local economy. Yeah, well, I mean, it's another great example, I guess. Of, uh, of of the global economy, that you, it's very easy to think about getting work done for you elsewhere. And and on the other hand, <clears throat> if we've got a unique set of skills, pitching those like we like we may not be price competitive, but we may be expertise competitive. Mm. So I have myself listed on some of those sites for <coughs> all, <coughs> excuse me, all manner of things. Sorry, I'll give you give you a moment. Give me, give me a 
second. Yeah, yeah. And uh, just in in um, just in reflecting in our conversation today, uh, you know, the, I, what underpins and, and just to bring it back to to real estate, um, just ever so slightly, is what underpins a real estate market is confidence, and and confidence is normally around a narrative about what's going on in our uh, our local economy or what what's going on right in front of us often, and um, and what's really interesting, I think, is that we we as uh, as a state and and perhaps our uh, the people we look to as, as leaders and drivers uh, of our economy aren't necessarily sh sharing and selling the narrative like you are. And I think if more people were aware as to the, the innovation that was going on in our city, the, the abundance of, of ideas and talent that we're, we're attracting uh, to Adelaide, um, that perhaps that uh, that confidence that was so easily knocked this year, uh, firstly with the Banking Royal Commission, then with the federal election, and now with the land tax, which were all really short-term kind of things. I feel like if we had an overriding narrative that South Australia is the, the innovation state and we're leading the way in the sectors of the future, then perhaps the, the consumer confidence that's been so rattled over uh, the best part of 2019 wouldn't have been so fragile and people would have a a, a, a more solid confidence and uh, and senses to where the state's going, where the economy's going, and not be and and, and perhaps not be then so reactive to these um, issues of the day that seem to have uh, such a detrimental effect on on people's thinking. I don't know if you're there, Rick. Perhaps you have gone to mute. mute. Just give Rick, and it appears we've just lost Rick there. Um, so, um, well, I really want to thank Rick Carter, and he, he really is one of the leading thinkers, as you've been able to tell um, over uh, recent times, and is really at the forefront of uh, innovation and encouraging ideas. So, um, Rick's idea around investing, if you're listening to this and you're excited about the potential and possibility that lie in our, in our thinkers here in Adelaide that are uh, excelling in these sectors, then there is that opportunity to reach out to Rick. You can do that through the podcast here um, or uh, to Rick directly. So that's Rick Carter, uh, Innovation in the City. You can check him out on Facebook, Innovation in the City. Join the page, send him a message there. Uh, he's the uh, administrator of that site. Um, and let him know of your intention to invest if you're um, as enthusiastic about Rick and myself about the future here in Adelaide. Uh, also, if you have an idea, and it might seem like a silly idea to you, but it just won't leave you alone. And uh, perhaps that's an idea you want to get um, out, of, out of your uh, spare room and your shed and onto shelves in stores, then um, Rick's certainly somebody to talk to. Perhaps it's just a, a concept that you are sure will have its time time, um, but um, aren't able to find the right people in order to pitch that to, um, in order to bring it to eventuality, then definitely Rick Carter's a go-to guy. And um, I, I hope you've enjoyed this discussion. Um, I think it was really important to talk about uh, those sectors, those industries that are really picking up the slack and more from the closure of some of those more traditional um, sectors of our economy that people are more familiar with. And in our area, that's definitely been vehicle manufacturing, which has uh, underpinned our local economy 
for much of the post-war period. And since Holden's closure, people haven't been too sure about what the narrative around uh, the northern suburbs and Adelaide more generally is. Um, and as I mentioned previously with these, um, uh, I guess these issues over the last 12 months that have led to a tumultuous real estate market and have negatively affected confidence, well, perhaps confidence wouldn't be so easily rattled if people were familiar uh, with all of the innovation that's going on here in Adelaide. So thank you very much, Rick, for joining me on the podcast. And I'll, uh, I'll look forward to sharing with you more of the influences uh, that are affecting uh, Adelaide and Adelaide's real estate market in the not too distant future uh, and certainly in upcoming episodes. Uh, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast once again and I'll look forward to bringing you more next time. Thanks for tuning in again to this episode of the Day Sovereign Podcast. Please follow us on Facebook or subscribe to us on iTunes and we look forward to bringing you more next week.